down there. But welcome to the Sweet Sarts of Fighting podcast. Today we have William Wayland. Welcome, William. Thanks for having me, James. No, thanks for coming on. So you're, I guess, around MMA, you're pretty active on Instagram. Uh, I guess sharing what you're doing there as well and, and around that community. So do you want to maybe give a little brief background about yourself and feel free to name drop some of the fighters that you <laughs> got there within your gym too? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, obviously I'm based in, in Chelmsford in, in Essex in the UK. Uh, you know, I'm a strength coach now, been in the industry uh, for you know, 20 years, but now I think about it, Jesus, it makes me feel very old. Um, <laughs> so I've been doing this a while, uh, combat athlete myself, so Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, uh, you know, ta- Taekwondo black belt as well, although I don't talk about that as much anymore. Um, <laughs> and I've been doing Jiu-Jitsu for uh, 12 years now, so a long time. And I've been working, I work primarily with a, a UK-based team called BKK Fighters historically, where a lot of the athletes I work with now, particularly the ones that are in the UFC, um, either past or present, have quite often come through BKK Fighters, but I've also worked with guys via correspondence and stuff. So um, the athletes, I guess, I'm probably you know, most well known for presently working with is, is uh, Corey McKenna, who's a bit of a sort of upcoming rising star uh, in the strawweight division in the UFC. And then the other being um, Arnold Allen, um, who as of this podcast, well, I don't know when this goes out, but at the moment we've literally just yesterday announced that he's going to be fighting um, uh, Calcutta. So uh, in October, so, um, yeah, Arnold will be fighting him. And Arnold's obviously got that that second longest win streak, I think, in their division. Mm. So, um, and obviously, hopefully, if this goes well, you know, who knows, he might springboard himself into a fight against Volk. Who, you know, it's nice. hard to say. We can't, can't speculate at the moment, but it's, uh, <laughs> you know, Qatar's a good matchup for him. So, yeah, I've been working with Arnold and Corey. Uh, they're probably the two most well-known ones I've worked with. I work with a lot of other fighters at all levels. Uh, amateur. Um, I worked with Luke Barnett in the past, who was in the UFC, had a decent UFC run. And then guys at different levels fighting at Cage Warriors, which is a pretty big sort of European level outfit. And then uh, more local shows uh, as well, working with BJJ guys, uh, UFC, you know, um, MMA guys, you know, the guys in the UFC, that's probably maybe, a, you know, a couple of percent of the MMA fighters I work with predominantly, not everyone makes it to that level. You know, I've had guys who've, who've you know, done the tough trials and stuff and, and just for whatever reason, not quite made it, you know, and, and their stories have to be told as well. Cause we learn a lot of lessons from working with those guys, you know, the guys who almost made it, um, so to speak. And, and yeah, like, uh, with Corey and with Arnold, they're both great examples of like long-term athletic development process. So guys who started out as like in their mid teens, and just kind of got everything right from day one. Mm. Whereas a lot of MMA fighters, they perhaps try and add essence. They find that they've got a talent for fighting and then try and add SNC in sort of a later date. And, and some of them struggle with that approach. Whereas if you can build yeah. it from the ground up as their skill development's taking place, their physical development's taking place as well. And I find that if you want a formula there for a successful athlete, like any other sport, if they start developing everything kind of early on enough, um, it becomes less of a hassle trying to plug that stuff in later on. Um, you know, so yeah, uh, just working with those guys for a while, um, you know, uh, and just keeping busy working with a few jujitsu athletes as well. Um, you know, I've shifted away a little bit from fighting kind of recently working more with pro golf. Uh, and I work for the, for the, for the 
DP World Tour uh, for the, for their um, performance institute, and but still kind of weird dabbling those two sports, so mixing up mm. golf and <laughs> MMA, you yeah. know. Um, but it, it works well, you know. Uh, I enjoy the contrast uh, for me. So, and there's some lessons I carry across from from one sport to the other, even though outwardly they look very very differently. You know, you think golfers are trying to produce a lot of power, you know, from a standing start, and and you know trying to knock someone out is not so different. So, um, you know, so there's, there's that, hopefully that's a pretty good roundup of what I've been doing, yeah. uh, just recently. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if you've met Arnold Allen's dad, my, my wife's dad <laughs> or father-in-law sent me a video from his YouTube channel of his dad's rusty garage or rusty outdoor gym. Yeah. Yeah. That's and he the was one. looking that's, the rust. <laughs> that's, 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 that's Pace's gym. Hopefully I'm going to go down with Arnold and we might do a little video maybe after the Qatar fight now, but, uh, nice. uh, uh some training at, at, uh, at Pace's gym. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a legend in his own. And he was an MMA fighter too. Um, mm. you can go and look up Pacer Allen's MMA fights. Uh, yeah, not only was he a strong man, uh, he also fought heavyweight MMA. So he's been there and done it, you know, um, and Pace is a lovely guy as well. He's got some terrific stories from like the, the, the old days of strongman in like the eighties and nineties and stuff and some of the crazy oh, things. Awesome. So those guys were doing so he's an interesting character um you know and he's he's, he's great to have around and and you know uh he's he's been great to, to arnold and his brother because people don't realize that arnold's brother as well is a under 90 kilo strong man and, and is one of the best in the mm. country um so arnold, arnold's brother does strong man as well so if you ever want like a a genetic uh lottery of sorts to, to hit, you know that's it arnold's not done too 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 badly you know it's kind of handed a good one there when he when he stepped into the gym so you know and and one thing we've always emphasized as part of arnold's training is physical strength and 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 it shows in his fights you know um he's able to, to manhandle people which is which is great he's obviously had a good influence from his parents as well in that regard starting mm. as you mentioned starting early as a teen i guess for mm. anyone listening who's maybe in their teens that are fighting or maybe parents that have kids that are coming through what are the things that you're focusing on at that age when they're starting to prepare them for when they potentially become professionals or older? Yeah, the, the, the key emphasis fundamentally, and this, this goes through from like the amateur level all the way to the highest level is that provided your strength training is, is fundamental and simplistic and well-planned, it'll carry you through for a, a long time. And basically quite often when you get, uh, you know, amateur or junior level fighters in, Quite often they don't really know what to focus on um and it sounds kind of obviously people who listen to this might well be interested in strength training in general or strength conditioning and it seems like of course get stronger but fighters don't always think that way their narrative isn't always that 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 way rooted they want to do stuff that that, that they feel will perhaps help them with fighting and when they look at traditional strength training uh we're talking basic stuff here you know squatting deadlifting uh, you know, uh, loaded jumps, stuff like that. Simple things, uh, particularly the guys who are now, you know, we've got a generation of fighters now raised on TikTok and, and Instagram <laughs> who gravitate towards the, 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 the idea that their training still has to be, you know, specific. There seems needs to be a level of specificity. Whereas what, when you watch what a lot of the best fighters are doing, a lot of the time it's very, very fundamental, very, very basic. And, and that's something we push juniors towards. And, and I can use Arnold as an example, for instance, um, you know, his training pretty much in the off-season consists of, of heavy trap bar deads, some heavy squatting. We do a lot of overhead pressing, push press, uh, you know, a few jumps, and then a little bit of accessory work. And it's a workout, you know, maybe twice a week, 
and it's no more complicated than that. And people see his training and they're like, this this stuff looks um, far too simple. And I think they're looking for like a silver bullet or something. And I do yeah. do a few special methods with him, but um, <clears throat> you know, 80, 90% of what we do is, is fundamentals and trying to get uh, you know juniors and even recreational or amateur fighters into that mindset that their strength training doesn't need to be particularly complicated because you've got enough complexity coming through the sport you don't need to add to that um with your strength and conditioning so quite often you know if you reduce your strength and conditioning down to simplistic components you know i need to improve my force capabilities you know i need to improve my 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 ballistic capabilities and you know one or two of those focuses with your training you probably can't go wrong but it's when people try and have the you know the the snc work resemble the fighting in any way shape or form uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty down on, on things like, I don't know, landmine punches and stuff like that. I'm not fond of those types of exercise selections because I feel that, that uh, you know, the landmine punch is a good one. I have a lot of discussions with Terence Kennel about this one. Um, mm. The landmine punch doesn't really resemble uh, a punch. If you've ever actually thrown a punch, you'll know that a landmine punch or a landmine throw is nothing like actually throwing a punch. The mechanics are all wrong. So why are we using this as some sort of metric of, of, of the potential transfer to punching power? And, um, yeah, I have a real problem with that because obviously there's a, a level of specificity when it comes to throwing punches that we have to respect. I'm, I'm digressing, but no, uh, you get you get my, <laughs> well, you get my point is that, is that basically, yeah. you know, amateurs and juniors get too wrapped up in, 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 in specificity initially and don't focus on just getting generally stronger. Uh, and something I caused a bit of a roar on Twitter, um, I think it was um, uh, one of the UFC refs, I can't remember his name now, um, the one from Birmingham, UK guy. Uh, his it was Mark Goddard, wasn't it? Mark, Mark Goddard, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, no disrespect to Mark. He kind of queried as to why I'd made the point that MMA fighters kind of trend weak. And if we do look at the UFC data, for instance, we can see that um, those guys have DSIs that are generally sort of quite high, between sort of 0.8 and 1, which if you don't know, DSI score is is, is uh, difference. Fundamentally, the, the ratio between your uh, um, ability to produce a lot of force and your ability to express it quickly uh, and the, between a mid-dipole and a jump, typically. Uh, for those who don't know what those tests are, you can quickly look it up. It's, it's not complicated. <laughs> but the point I'm making is is that quite often fighters uh, have explosive strength that's pretty close to their their absolute maximum strength, which means that the ceiling could always be higher for their for their strength, for their maximum strength. And, um, you know, a lot of the fighters, particularly the females, come in needing more strength. Um, and this is, these are, this is you know, based off the UFC PI's numbers. And generally yeah. what I see as we go down the ranks, and I test a lot of amateur fighters fighting on lo local shows, and we do the same, some of the same tests, generally strength is always at a deficit. These guys may be technical, they may be technical, uh, which is what's got them as far as they have. But obviously, as they go up the ranks, they're going to come against guys who are technical, technical, and strong, and explosive, and have all those other qualities. And that's a that's a, a you know a, a, a gap you need to bridge. Um, again, I, I, I digress, yeah. which is something I'm very good at. But uh, no, yeah, you, you get hopefully ho hopefully you get my point. No, it's good. It's a podcast, and you're the guest, so I want you to, to talk <laughs> all, anything that anything that comes to your head, uh -huh. go for it. But it's a it's an interesting point you make about. The landmine punch. If anyone's listening, uh, William mentioned Terence Kennel. He was on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, or maybe a few episodes ago now. So you can check that out after this as well. But the landmine punch is interesting because obviously the UFC PI 
uses that as one of their tests. They're now, mm. I think they're publishing a paper soon showing very strong correlations with, I think, rare hand punching power as well mm-hmm. between the landmine punch and that. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, you got you got kind of two trends of thought. You know, it correlates well to the punch, but then at the same time, you know, does that mean that it's going to transfer, you know, to the power of the punch as well? Because so, do, do you know what else correlates well to punching power? Back squat. Go. Yeah. Back squat. Bench press. Lower body strength, yeah. lower body so, power. Yeah. So I think just <clears> being <throat> generally strong and explosive. Yeah. Correlates well to punching power. You know. So I guess you and, could, I guess you could also correlate back squat, lower body strength and power to the landmine punch. And you probably see a positive correlation there too. And that could be your your causal effects as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's where you, you know, you, you can't hang out on any one exercise as being a predictor of, 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 uh, anything particularly, because that's what correlates are for, right? So, you know, you've got a decent 0.8 correlation, say you're probably looking pretty good to you implement whatever that is. Uh, but you know, with the land, with the landmine punch, like, um, I know fighters who've never done landmine punches before and have great punches, you know, that's a, that's obviously mm. a subjective observation. You know, Arnold, for instance, doesn't bench press. He doesn't like bench pressing. He prefers overhead press. So we all do, uh, push press jerk variations for him. And he mm-hmm. hits like a freight train, you know, so he can, you know, as we saw in his last fight, he can knock people out and, but he doesn't bench press, uh, out of personal preference. He doesn't like doing yeah. it. Um, he doesn't like the way it makes him feel. And this is another thing that, that people perhaps struggle with is sometimes I let athletes dictate exercise selection. Sometimes there's stuff they need to do, which is important, but you know, it, it's a case of balancing that and asking the questions. And in that case, I let his personal preference because at the end of the day, if he's doing a, uh, a push press or a jerk or something, he's still getting the stimulus I'm after, which is, um, yeah. you know, connection, uh, between, um, you know, the ground and his hands, uh, and then like full body organization, you know, stiffness in the right places, whether he's doing a push press or, or whatever. And, um, you know, he, he likes that movement. You know, I could bench press him. I could force him to bench press, I guess, you know, but his dad would certainly like that. But in, in my case, you know, we, we get him push pressing because he just prefers the movement. You know, and that's where you kind of let the athlete dictate. Whereas other fighters we'd have them bench press. I've written articles on, on a lot of the pressing variations. I like for fighters. We do a lot of, uh, you know, close grip incline pressing because I feel that has, uh, you know, decent positive transfer, a lot of open-handed pressing as well. Um, mm. uh, things like that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I- interesting how, you know, your attachments to a specific exercise do to its perceived potential for transfer. Cause you know, once you think you've got a good idea, your, your, um, you know, impulses to run with it quite often. So I'm not sure who came up with the landmine landmine punch. But, uh, you know, I like Someone the, on Instagram. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I've always felt that the landmine punch is inherently unstable, for instance. Um, I've done them myself. I've used them extensively experimenting personally and with athletes. I've always found the jammer press more useful from a ballistic standpoint because mm. with the jammer press, because it's mounted on a hinge, you can really blast it and not worry about where it's going to go. Whereas I always yeah. find with a landmine, you've got to have someone on the other side and there's sort of a hesitancy to really go after it because there's a risk that the barbell may swing out. Yeah, yeah. you can you can minimize that, but from a, from a just a feel and an implementation standpoint, I do like the the jammer punch more than the landmine punch. I've got both in my gym, and we just seem to have gravitated towards the uh, towards the um, jammer punch because particularly when we're tracking velocities, I find that the obviously 
with the jammer we can we can achieve decent velocities uh ballistic velocities with that whereas um your landmine punch is always going to be stuck to the fact that you're using a 20 kilo barbell and then you get the question of well at what point is the landmine punch going to become redundant and if i want to use lighter implements do i start integrating like med ball throws single hand med ball throws stuff like that yeah. so you know um and again it's kind of part part of the art of coaching right it's hard to say when yeah. or where we should implement that stuff no, I love the, the little the little crusade yourself and Jeff Jeffrey Chu was on against the landmine punch stuff. Yes, no, it's re it's really good, you know, because it kind of you get both both perspectives. Of obviously, you have the UCPI doing it, and people look mm -hmm. to the UCPI as leading the way on the strength conditioning side of for MMA, and then you got you guys mm -hmm. also doing really like honestly like your guys stuff. I find resonates even with myself a lot, and I think with a lot of other people in terms of just overall strength conditioning, keeping things basic. Um, focusing really on, you know, the technical tactical is the most important part of your training and decency is there to support, you know, what you're doing. Yeah. And as you mentioned with the basics there, but if, if someone's listening and maybe that in that situation that you mentioned, you know, they, they have been fighting they figure out they're all, they're pretty okay at fighting, but they haven't actually dabbled in the strength conditioning side that much, mm -hmm. but they're a little older now. Where do they start? Do they start similar to how you mentioned them where you had with, uh, potentially like Arnold Allen and his teens, where they start with those very basic. Mm -hmm. programs and kind of continue yeah it, you, it's kind of a case of meeting meeting them where they are which is what's important do they have uh have they strength trained in the past you know it's a question we'll, we uh, will always ask and quite often if they're older they probably have or they've at least dabbled in in some sense um you know and their entry point is going to be kind of where and what they need like for instance um I'll, I'll often throw some gpp work at them to uh to use that as a sort of jumping off point to see uh what they need you know depending on on what they want we can sometimes test them do a pr proper performance assessment um you know i run a private gym so some some athletes that's they can't afford that so you know we'll we'll have them come in and we'll just sort of look at how they move look at where their numbers come up from a strength training standpoint so you know it's it's kind of again it's about meeting where they are and trying to figure out what they need one thing i do find if guys are a bit long in the tooth who've been doing it a while generally will gravitate towards volume uh sorry towards intensity based approaches instead of volume based approaches um <clears throat> because quite often what i find is a lot of the guys have come to me for strength and conditioning they've probably already tried to give it a go quite often off their own backs quite often based on their own research uh, and we have an abundance of information that's available now. And quite often what these guys have done is they've gravitated towards sort of higher volume approaches. Yeah. Um, you know, they're dabbling things like kettlebells, circuit training, um, you know, stuff that, that, you know, isn't inherently bad, but perhaps isn't what they need at that point in time. If you're an older athlete and you've got a lot of miles on your joints, um, and let's say, your expenditure physically for the week is limited. You know, uh, um, you know, when you're young, you can do three days and bounce back and still do your S&C. As you get older, quickly towards like into your 30s, you're going to struggle to do that type of volume of training, particularly if you're a normal person with a job and then you're trying to fit in, say, two, three hours of training a day on top of that. There are guys who can make that work, but then perhaps your strength training is, is the proverbial um, straw that breaks the camel's back because you've integrated it poorly or improperly. Um, that's where obviously having a, a sensible, measured, smart approach 
is useful. And if, again, for a lot of these guys, what I find is, you know, for instance, let's say someone gravitates towards a, a traditional five by five strength training plan, and they come to me and they go, look, I've tried to integrate this plan it's got a lot of say you know heavy five by five training that's a classic rep range right guy people do five by five all the time um yeah and they go look i'm doing this i'm trying to do my jiu-jitsu and mma and stuff on top of that but it's like i'm sore i'm tired and it's like well have you considered perhaps just cutting the volume down and you and I said, well, have you thought of doing five by three at the same loading have you thought of doing five by two at the same loading you're going to get most of the same benefits more than likely and and you, you see the light bulb go off and they're like, so you're saying that I can get potentially most of the same benefits, but I have to do less work. And you know, <laughs> because there's this connection between work and outcome, they don't yeah. understand that less is, less is more. And it's that message, that less is more message is what really underpins a lot of the S&C work I do, which is kind of why I like the triphasic training approach, particularly during off season is because it, it helps me get get um you know more from less when it comes to a training standpoint so for instance you know uh, Corey mckenna fought this year and historically every fight she's had in the ufc up until this point she's carried something into that fight be it an injury or something this time you know we had a, a frank conversation before her most recent fight in the ufc she's young right and young fighters quite often want to do everything possible to be the best they can be they'll sneak in extra workouts they'll They'll, you know, try and get as much extra work as possible because they feel they need it. And this psychology, you know, you know, older fighters have it too. They want to do as much as they can to be the best, right? Because, you know, you hear all these stories about type A athletes who just like do everything under the sun, <laughs> every every waking moment, you know, they're, they're focused on being the best, this whole, you know, hustle, grind set yeah. stuff, you know, it's terrible. I think it's actually, you know, bad for athletes because some of them, some of the best guys I've met, do manage to make so much out of so little and that's where when your snc training if you can condense it down to the very minimum of things that you need and with corey for instance we took this approach it's like well you know she used to do a lot of road running it's like well maybe we back off the road running you know we keep your sessions to two <clears throat> lifting sessions a week if we do do some stand-up conditioning let's try and keep it somewhat sport specific maybe shadow boxing or bag work for for like low level aerobic work instead of pounding the pavements yeah. like you used to used to do historically and you know she performed probably the best she she's ever performed and you know, she sort of we had a conversation afterwards and she's like yeah i see what you were saying now you know less is is definitely more and and yeah just getting fighters heads around that i was the same when i used to compete i was always always trying to do extra always trying to do extra because you're always constantly told you have to go that extra mile you have to do that extra workout yeah. You know, um, you, you know, you're 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 a coward or, or or weak if you're you know not on the mats for whatever reason. And some people can make it survive that stuff. It's a meat grinder. But some people will survive that stuff. And I guess you're familiar with the concept of survivorship bias, right? So they're the guys that yeah. you know potentially end up then sticking into the sticking in the sport. They become coaches and they make the the gross assumption that everybody should follow their pattern of of of. Uh, training and their arc of improvement because especially um, rugby in a, in a nutshell too pretty much and a lot of these yeah, yeah a lot of these yeah a lot of these guys end up becoming coaches and they, they're under the assumption that everyone else should train exactly the same way the same volume at the same intensities that they used to and if they can't handle yeah. it then they don't make the grade you know but 
different people obviously have different capacities for recovery, for training. You know, I'm 40 next year. And I always joke that hopefully next year I'll be able to start doing over 40 fitness content because suddenly that allows me to, my training hasn't really changed much uh, in the past couple of years. But the big thing that has changed in my personal, my own training, you know, because you know, I'm a jiu-jitsu black belt as well. And I, I, I love strength training personally, you know, is that I, I you know, I, I do so little in my lifting sessions now where I'm focusing on maybe only two, three exercises with any real intensity. And I think back to my early twenties when I used to do sessions that would last nearly two hours in the gym. And I'm like, I have no idea Just how I managed Yeah, yeah. Two hours. <laughs> I have no idea how I manage those types of training volumes. And it's like, you know, and, and you do have the sense of, of indestructibility when you're young, um, mm. you know, but that, that can come around and bite you in the butt uh, eventually. So, you know, it's just, just that idea of just being, just trying to do, do the, fo you know, focus on the bare minimum, but figuring out what you need to focus on is the hard part, I guess, which is why people hire strength and conditioning coaches, right? Because that dissemination of all that information is tough. And, and you know, yes, we do yeah. live in this age where there's so much information out there, but our job as an S&C coach is to disseminate that because, you know, let's, let's say, you know, you need to get your car fixed you know, unless you've got all the time in the world, you're not going to sit down and read, you know, does anybody actually read their car's user manual? <laughs> no, they take that's it to the garage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they take it to the garage and let the mechanic fix it because that's his job, right? You know, the same thing, you know, when anyone suddenly, someone gets sick, right? You get, you get like an awful disease, let's say cancer or something. You, you become an overnight, in, in, you know, oncology expert, right? You didn't yeah. care before until it was a problem. Uh, because most people don't really understand their own bodies either, you know, when it comes to wellness, illness, whatever it is, because obviously we've only got a very limited scope of, of information we can, you know, take in and understand. So people are always surprised that, that sometimes some of the worst fitness advice comes from professional athletes. And it's because most of the time they've never had to manage their own uh, training. You know, yeah. um, some of them have a passion for it. Yes. And they, t and they take that <clears> and run with it. But a lot of athletes, there was that great video, I think just recently, of, I think it was a, a, an NFL player talking about his workouts or something. And, and basically it's like a minute of gobbledygook. He's just like, <laughs> you know, and it's just like, and nobody can suss out what this guy's saying, but it's just a, a key point that sometimes you, know, you talk to the pros and they're jumping off points for training, perhaps are not, not the best. And if you're an amateur athlete or a recreational athlete, perhaps don't follow their lead. And meet, you know, again, we talk about meeting athletes where they are, you know, you have to control your expectations and meet yourself where you are. And that's where a lot of people mess up is, is that um, something I like that Dan John always used to say is that everybody thinks they're elite, right? And, yeah. you know, yeah, well, of course, I want to do the, 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 you know, the, the, the conjugate super maximal, you know, <laughs> French contrast, you know, workout, because because that's the training stimulus I need because I'm elite. Whereas most people, you have to bring them way, 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 way back because they're just not ready or, or, or not in any position to do that type of stuff. You know, um, big one for me is like people message me all the time about French contrast because it's something I've helped popularize. I'd like to think, you know, um, yeah. <clears throat> lots of people sort of took my, followed my lead on that. And, and I started using a lot of French contrast with fighters and, I always make the point and I've made it in other podcasts and, and in articles is that why would you integrate French contrast? Let's say, um, for those of you who don't know, French contrast is, 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 uh, basically a, a pairing of, of plyometric strength and, and, uh, ballistic work in, in, in a sequence that one potentiates the next potentiates the next 
usually typically four exercises and you'll see guys jumping with bands and stuff that's the that's the flourish that's what everyone pays attention to is the the banded jumping that people do because it looks cool <laughs> that's um, the engagement yeah yeah that's 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 what, that's what gets people viewing your videos right um so people care about that stuff um so why would you pair four of those exercises together if you're only technically competent at say one component of that you know because usually let's mm. say a typical french contrast is a squat a plyometric, some sort of loaded jump, and then some sort of accelerated jump. If you're not practiced at any one of those components, the whole thing's pointless. So perhaps take the time to get good at those individual components, then yeah. merge them together. But again, people want to rush to the end, right? They want to go straight to the flourish. They want to do the band yeah. of jumps. They want to do the plyometrics. But if you can barely squat, and if you can barely jump, French contrast is going to give you nothing. It's a waste yeah. of your time. I still see people doing this stuff in an effort to try and, you know, they want to, they want to try and, you know, they feel it's a, a, a silver bullet or some sort of secret technique in order to improve their power or explosiveness or something. And uh, yeah, they, they, again, they want to jump to the end. Yeah. Again, I digress, but, but uh, hopefully that makes my, my point of, of where we are with like recreational guys, just wanting to train like pros, which is a massive mistake. Yeah. And I guess the issue is that when people jump straight to French contrast or whatever advanced thing they're doing, then what do you do after a few weeks of that? You know, that exactly. At the end, and they go, yeah. Okay, we'll just keep doing the same thing. Or yeah, yeah. Well, you on. played you played your ace card, right? Like it's yeah, exactly. it's where do you, where, where do you go from here? You're lucky if you're not hurt, you know. But uh, at the yeah. same time, you know, you're not going to get the same benefit out of doing French contrast that you would if you take time to to get good at the requisite components of that. So yeah. you know, again, it's people wanted wanted to rush to the end, you know, um, and and it just doesn't work for for, for most guys. Or you know that extra training load is far too much on top of everything else you're trying to do. Um, yeah. cause people are surprised. Like for instance, I usually only give two sort of, uh, SNC intensive SNC sessions a week to most pros and some pros have turned around with me and gone two weeks. That can't be enough. And I was like, well, because we're going to aim for like a high intensity, low volume approach, <clears throat> trust me, once you're in it, you'll appreciate why that is enough, you know? Um, yeah. and it's just, again, appreciating elements like that as well. Uh, and that's, that's where sort of, you know, focusing on correctly applied intensity over just jump volume training, which is what a lot of, uh, you know, MMA SSC has been historically is jump volume training. Um, you know, if you can implement a qualitative approach, you're, you're part of the way there. How do you cycle the, your intensity and volume then? Cause obviously you mentioned you do a high, high intensity, low volume approach, and yeah. obviously that spans over probably most, uh, most of the year. So then how do you cycle that intensity? So it's not always, hey, we're always thinking, yeah, yeah. I don't know, close to whatever the rent max is. Yeah. So, so you know, in, intensity um, comes at a sort of, there, there's intensity of, of, of scalability. I'm just trying to think of a, a way to put it eloquently. Would be that obviously if you're doing um, intensive training, intensity can come from both load. It can come from uh, velocity of barbell movement for instance uh and it can come from intent um and mm. uh you know we think of high force actions like a heavy squat or a heavy deadlift yes there is intensity there we think of let's say qualitative um movements that involve like jumping loaded jumping or or, or weights lifted quickly there's high intensity there again the volume will be low but the effort will be maximum and mm -hmm. that the bar speed will be maximum but the actual loading on the bar might be low and then the other thing is when it comes to say ballistic movements like throws and jumps again 
we can have intensity there, but the intensity will come via your intent to move whatever it is quickly. So when we say intensity, we just have to qualify what we mean by that. And intensity comes in uh, a number of varieties. But most of the time, the key thing there is always intent. And I talk about intent quite a lot because <laughs> you ask athletes when they're lifting, are they actually trying to put the most effort they can into every single rep, into every single mm. lift that they're doing? And that same intent to do the movement as qualitatively and as quickly as possible works for the high force stuff. It works for the, for the high force, high velocity stuff. And it works for the ballistic stuff as well. And that's what I guess I mean when I talk about intensity is that, that even though there's variation in the loading, um, the mechanical loading varies, the intent to perform the movement as ballistically <clears throat> and as quickly as possible is always high. Does that make sense? Nice. Yep. That makes sense. I guess yeah. that's a, a principle just uh, from cat training. Com Shit, I can't even say the word. Compen Compensatory, <laughs> whatever. Com Compensatory acceleration. Yeah. 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 Uh, I wanted to take it back a little bit because you mentioned triphasic sure. training. So people mm -hmm. listening to this may have heard of it as relatively, I guess, popular now from Cal Deeks. Yeah. Do you want to maybe dive into how you incorporate triphasic training into that kind of off-season period? Sure. So what, what I do now is uh, the traditional triphasic plan focuses on um, eccentrics. Um, so uh, high forces moved at low velocities, particularly during the yielding portion of a movement. And then isometrics, uh, which is high forces during a, a moment of, 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 of um, uh, not moving. So, so the movement is static. And then um, usually a focus on, on rapid concentric component. Um, and those three married together, because historically before triphasic training, I used to dabble with, with isometrics and eccentrics, but it was never really done in a particularly organized fashion. Um, it used to be, okay, we're going to do a cycle of eccentrics. Okay, we just do, do a cycle of isometrics or whatever. Um, kind of influenced somewhat by the sort of Poliquin stuff because he was one of the first guys to turn around and say, mm. you know, um, you know, maybe we can get more out of training using these methods. So all Cal Dids did is he organized it in a systemic fashion. You spend three weeks, you'd usually do a GPP phase of some sort. You spend a couple of weeks, you tip, historically the, the old method was three, then you deload a week, you do three weeks of isometric, and then you deload a week, and then you do a sort of conventional concentric style training. Um, but what we've you know found now is that we can get more <clears throat> training done in a condensed period, if we start using implementing elements of what we call super maximal training. So we know that, for instance, for heavy eccentrics, um, heavy eccentric training at like 90% plus is where the kind of money is on, on that. Eccentrics either have to be performed ex, you know, extremely hard, uh, high intensities or extreme speeds involving a yeah. deceleration. That's the two ways to get the most out of your eccentric training. What we know now is that eccentric training performed at like anywhere between 40 to 80% of your one RM, apart from it potentially having like motor learning potential. So <laughs> if you need to learn the skill of a lift, doing slow control movements can be useful in that regard. But in terms of meaningful like change structurally to the muscle, you want to go super maximal. Yeah. Um, and people see this stuff and they see guys doing like weights in, ex in excess of their, of their one RM, um, 
being lifted very, very slowly, typically sort of seven to 10 seconds. And they look at me and go, why the hell are you getting to do that? You look like you're going to break them. And it's like, well, the point is, if I can get a really strong training stimulus from just two weeks of super maximal eccentrics that have long training residuals, so we know that the benefits of that will last a long time, um, and I can do the same thing with isometrics and the training and the benefits of that will last a long time because the residuals from super maximal training. So the benefit carried across time is way longer with super maximal work. Um, I'm going to use that stuff because it's exploitable. I only need to say four weeks of the athlete's time during those four weeks, they'll be sore for sure. Um, mm. because it's hard. Um, and Yes, you need to have the right equipment and stuff. So you need to have like, you know, safety bars work really well. You can do a partner-based one with trap bar. You can, you can, if you look on my Instagram or, or any of Caldita's stuff, you can see this stuff in action. And that super maximal work then uh, basically gives an, a, a really, really big uh, foundation of capacity for everything else you're going to do. Um, because we know, for instance, that super maximal eccentrics change the muscle structurally very significantly. Um, you know, what we know now about the way sort of Titan works and other, other things that occur on a structural level, um, that super maximum eccentrics are very useful, uh, for building, you know, tenderness, muscular strength, isometrics, very useful for, for, um, uh, tenderness strength as well. We know that for instance, that doing super maximum movements in general has a peripheral, um, blood pressure effect, for instance. Um, so what's weird is we see effects when people do super maximal training blocks of like lowered heart rate and lowered blood pressure post because obviously, because when you're, you're stressing that stuff really highly, there's obviously still going to be an adaptation there an underappreciated one, but it's one sort of random sort of side benefit of doing that stuff. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, once we do that and I've done those super maximal triphasic blocks, then we're free for the next couple of months <clears> to focus on ballistics uh, high force, high velocity work, your typical mm, power nice. sort of type type training, or what we'll do is some instances we'll implement sort of oscillatory or AFSM uh, type type strength training as well. Nice. So let's start with, I guess, when you would implement this, <laughs> how far away from a fight then would you be using the super maximal blocks? Obviously, you don't want to have someone listening and they go, yeah, four weeks out, I'll nail it now. Yeah, 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 yeah. So typically it's always always done post-fight in a reactive sense. So the fighters will fight. I'll give them a couple of weeks off. We'll do a very brief GPP block and straight into super maximal or, or, or just nice. conventional triphasic. It doesn't have to be super maximal. Just conventional yeah. triphasic work maybe where we can focus on eccentrics and isometrics for a little while because I know their chance of getting another fight is lowest, yeah. um, gotcha. if that makes sense, yeah? It, but in some instances we do get a fight <laughs> they'll get like one at four or eight weeks or something but that way i can then just quickly shift back into what we were doing before and yeah. this is what i call kind of like the agile approach to this problem um because i know mm -hmm. basically i'm safe that if like in the weeks post a fight i can implement this type of method the chance of getting another fight either at their lowest yeah? yeah and that's just me being flexible with my my uh planning structure and then, um, you know, then once we get the announcement, like we were doing some off-season stuff with Arnold, he got the Qatar uh, matchup, for instance, uh, with six weeks to go. So we've had to switch his training on, on I'd had to turn on a dime and change his training, um, yeah. you know, to a more peaking focused type of training. 
Um, but because we'd spent time sort of kind of working on stuff while he was after his last fight, I know that he's good good to just just make that switch suddenly. You know, uh, gotcha. whereas perhaps with guys who aren't as advanced, you can't get away with that switching about as much. And you want to integrate strength work and keep it kind of integrated mm-hmm. as close to a fight as you can get away with. Um, and again, it depends on the, the ability level. If they're very, still very novice, you probably keep doing some, some sort of high force work pretty close up into the fight, right? Um, yeah. Provided it doesn't leave them feeling too tired or too fatigued. But again, it just it's all about meeting the athlete where they are and what specific qualities mm-hmm. they need to focus on. And I think, again, because we know that a lot of fighters generally are in deficit when it comes to strength, we should probably hang on to the heavy intensive strength work longer when we come to approaching a fight. Whereas people are very keen to drop it because it perhaps is deleterious, but I think that's because a lot of time it's not managed properly. Because, um, yeah. oh yeah, the heavy strength work makes me feel tired like when I'm, when I'm doing my sparring and stuff. And it's like, well, perhaps we need to take a strength training approach that it, you know, is very, very qualitative even if it means going in, doing doubles or singles at a sort of intensive yeah. load and then getting out, you know, um, because... And not doing like Shaco or... No, 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 some, something, something, something ridiculous. And I do see some of the strength yeah. training volumes some of these guys try and handle while they're doing their, you know, most intensive sparring. Because at the end of the day, the sparring and the simulated rounds and stuff is, is what matters most. And as long as we're not yeah. impairing on that, that's what matters. As long as we're not not doing anything that's deleterious to their, to their ability to handle all that allostatic load of the stress of, of getting ready for a fight, then we, we're good. You know, um, as soon as there's an interference effect, that's when we've got to back down. Cause at the end of the day, it's, it's, you know, techniques and tactics that win fights, not, not uh, necessarily being the strongest. Yeah, for sure. You obviously had, you made a good segue before talking about the oscillatory isometrics or AFSM stuff. Yes. And I, I have a Graham Morris, I think on the second podcast of this, we touched on that. We've had a couple of other guests where we touch on the oscillatory isometric as well. It seems to be quite a few people using it for picking, obviously, I guess made popular by Cal Dietz as well. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. guess he was the one who kind of brought it to light and then guys like yeah. yourself have implemented it and applied it, I guess made it a little more mainstream again. So do you want to maybe dive into what it actually is, what you're trying to get out of it, and then how you use it with your fighters? Yeah. So, um, the, the revelation I had was this, uh, I was doing a lot of typical sort of what you call conventional peaking work with fighters. Um, so typically like a lot of, a lot of plyometrics, uh, a lot of, a lot of ballistics. And when we get fighters jumping and doing a lot of sort of jump work, bounds, hops, that type of stuff, you appreciate the fact that fighters, particularly when I started doing a lot of RSI testing, which tests their ability to use the floor effectively, uh, uh, how, how spring-like can the athlete be? Um, you find that fighters generally do pretty badly. I think it's for two reasons. One is that uh, combat sports and the kinetic, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the kinetic sequencing they use to generate power in their hands or in their feet isn't like doing a jump or doing a sprint or anything like that, because the, they basically use the floor, um, you know, and, and the lower, co- the ankle complex, for instance, instance like kind of like a spring. Um, so there's the, you know, the, 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 the storing and then, and then dispersion of, of elastic energy. Um, and, uh, you know, efficient runners and sprinters are very good at using the ground that way. 
when it comes to fighting, if you think about it, it's stick and then produce force, right? So you're not using the ground like a like a trampoline of sorts. You're you're sticking. You're you're then producing lots of force through low body. There's a relaxation and then a stiffening on contact with your opponent. Um, and that's funny enough where, where I find that golf probably has more similarities with fighting than it does with, with other sports. Um, and you find that the limiting factor for a lot of fighters when it comes to trying to do plyos and things like that is their ankle complex um, sucks. Like a lot of them have <laughs> like a navicular drop. So their, their, their ability to maintain a good arch and a good ankle position doing plyos and stuff isn't great. And the other thing is, because they're training most of the time on mats, unshod mm. means that quite often their 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 foot splay is very relaxed. Their their the way they 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 contact the ground is very relaxed. Um, because obviously training on mats and stuff, it's not like training on a hard surface. So you adapt to the surface you train on. So um, in this instance, that's where I started thinking. Well. Because initially I looked at Cal Dieter's oscillatory stuff, and and like a lot of guys, I was like, I'm not so sure about this. These guys are like, you know, shaking like the, the you know, the, 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 <laughs> I don't know why that. I put like a shitting dog, um, so to speak, yeah. and they're doing like lots of movements where they're shaking around, and and um, it's perhaps because I was, you know, this was probably ten years ago when I first saw it, and and you know, perhaps in my arrogance, I discarded it a little bit, and then as I came across this revelation that, oh, wait a minute. Um, what really matters for fighters is that is that ability to 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 you know generate tension, relax rapidly, and generate tension again. That 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 uh, you know um, that tension relaxation coupling sort of sequence. Um, and you know the way I guess Caldito always put it is like trying to flick on and off a light switch as quickly as you can. And that rapid contract relax mechanism. You know if so if the ankle structure isn't what is a limiting factor, then perhaps we need to train that contract relax mechanism in a fashion that takes the ankle out of the, 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 um, uh, out of the, out of the sequence. So that's where like oscillatory movements, where you focus on pushing and pulling yourself in and out of, of say a, a quarter squat, or you can see lots of examples of this or a hinge or something. And that focus on that rapid contract, relax, contract, relax, push, pull, push, pull, push, pull. Um, potentially may have better transfer for these guys. You know, again, this is based largely on, on sort of um, gym dabbling and anecdote and what we see, observe, uh, you know, from, from the fighters. Um, again, that's the only problem with the oscillatory method is that at the moment it's still somewhat speculative. We don't have a lot yeah. of research that backs the approach, but the only way I can, I can suggest is that when fighters do do it, they feel like they're hitting harder. Um, and then the only other thing is I get decent improvements in, uh, our ballistic measures. So when it comes to jumping and throwing, mm, we, okay. I see that the velocities that they're jumping and throwing at seem to improve, even though we may not be any doing any jumping and throwing, the intervention seems to make jumping and throwing better. So there's perhaps something there, uh, to that until someone, you know, maybe if I get the time, I decide to pony up and do a PhD at some point, I could maybe look at this stuff, <laughs> but, but right now, again, it's based on, on sort of speculative reasoning um yeah. <clears throat> and then what we see happening in terms of positives transfer but that's the beauty of this type of stuff is that you know if 80 to 90 percent of my stuff is based on convention i can perhaps play with that 10 percent because don't get me yeah. wrong we're still doing jumps we're still doing throws but then we're also adding in <clears throat> this oscillatory stuff 
and it seems to be making uh, a benefit. But again, it's that point I made about French contrast. It's people focus on the banded jumps. We're doing yeah. the throwing. We're doing the jumping. We're also doing the oscillatory work. And people just focus on the wacky looking exercises because <laughs> they look kind of silly, right? And that's where, you know, you have to look at the oscillatory stuff and try and extract out what movements may be useful for your specific population. Because if you look up oscillatory training and go on Cal's YouTube channel, for instance, there's yeah. more oscillatory exercises than you could ever perform in a lifetime. Um, <laughs> you can't do them all. So that's where you have to be smart as a coach and figure out, you know, perhaps if you're training a baseball player, then an oscillatory exercise for the, for the shoulder you know, where you're doing sort of a, you know, um, you look like you're, you're jerking someone off, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, in, in the air, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. If, yeah. I, if I can be crude, you know, uh, and, and that looks that stuff looks silly. For If you're working with a baseball player or a pitcher, that stuff could be useful for the rotator cuff. You know, is it going to be as useful for, for you know, a, a rugby player? Mm-hmm. You know, the guy, the guy that needs sort of, you know, um, different qualities in the shoulder? I don't know. But yeah. that's where you as an S- S&C coach have to disseminate what you think may be useful, uh, what may not be useful. And again, um, people see the flourish. They worry about just the oscillatory stuff. And it's like, well, there's a ton of work we've done before we get to that point, before we do the funky looking exercises that, uh, you know, we can, we can pull from. So, you know, it's, it's a case of us just trying to, to, to eke what little more we can out of some of the athletes and don't get too hung up on exercise selection and stuff. But, the, the oscillatory work is, 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 it's interesting. <clears throat> the other thing is it's novel. So the athletes, some of them like doing it because it's different. Yeah. Um, and that has value to some extent as well. Um, but the biggest thing with the oscillatory stuff and the, coming back to my previous point, <laughs> oscillatory stuff drives intent. You yeah. give them that cue to push and pull as rapidly as they can for 10 seconds and give it everything that intent carries value going forwards. So then when you do get them do their throws, when you do get them do their pad work, that same intent to do the whole thing, you know, rapid, contract, relax, keep that value at the heart of what it is you're trying to do, that has value as well. And, and this is where that sort of intent is kind of a nebulous idea, but but having intent when you do these things is super important. And funny enough, coming backwards from golf is where the intent thing started being important <laughs> because what I found is a lot of golfers were obsessing over trying to hit the ball as fast as they could on their driver because golf is super technical sport. These guys learn to do beautiful swings that look great, have real finesse to them. And you actually say to the golfer, are you hitting that as hard as you can? And they're like, no. And they're like, well, why don't you try? Like, what do you mean? It's like try and hit it as hard (laughs) as you can go at it with maximum intent. And it's like, because their coaches are so worried about technical breakdown, they never encouraged yeah. them to, to come at it with maximum intent. And I was like, well, working backwards, you know, there's something maybe we can pull from that that applies to maybe SNC in general and to golf. Are we actually trying to do everything with maximum intention when we do it? Yeah. Are we, or are we just coasting? <clears throat> and the beauty of, of certain exercises do help drive intent. So when you give someone a 10-second, 7-second time frame to push-pull as rapidly as they can with maximum effort, something kind of clicks and then they yeah. realize that that, that 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 intent is a really important part of what they're trying to achieve yeah i've got a billion a billion more questions and thoughts on this now <laughs> for you so i'm gonna try, i'm gonna try synthesize it all down but first i guess an easy way to describe oscillatory asymmetry would be like almost like a plyometric for the hip or shoulder or whatever it is yes. without having the ground contacts yeah yes so yeah. 
So I know it's a peaky mode. I've actually been waiting to ask you this specific question for a couple of weeks now since we booked this podcast. And it's around, I guess, the older athlete. So I'm mm-hmm. going to take myself or my wife, my wife's professional weightlifter as an example. She's had some injuries. She hasn't done as much weightlifting recently. Eventually, after the baby stuff, we'll get her back in there to potentially have another run. But as an older body or someone who may be carrying some neck injuries, loaded jumps, other plyometrics like your pogos or whatever mm-hmm. else it is, might not be viable in terms of developing their speed or whatever those adaptations are. Even yeah. though osteoarthritis might be a peaking method, could it then be used as a replacement for other plyometrics and still develop, I guess, those qualities that you want and be used almost like a year-round thing as like in place of traditional plyometrics? Yeah, uh, uh, perhaps underappreciated because obviously that high intensity uh, oscillatory movements do have value in, in that regard. And they definitely have a uh, potentiation effect, uh, which is something I've found. But there's a subcategory of oscillatory movements, which are basically advantaged and disadvantaged oscillatory movements. Mm. So let's say, let's, we, let's say we do a disadvantaged oscillatory bench press. So we bench press, we bring the bar down to our chest, we perform a short up movement, back down, back up again, back down, and then we finish our press. Movements yeah. like that have value in that regard, teaching that, that on-off, on-off uh, approach to the way we need to get our muscles to, to contract and relax, contract and relax. And we can do those with sort of sub-max loads and get a decent training effect from that type of stuff. And I find that for quite often, the people who've lost touch with their ability to, you know, particularly guys who've been strength training a long time, quite often they lose uh, qualitative relaxation. You can yeah. see it in guys, for instance, who've been squatting and benching. A little, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> have you ever like tried to lower a barbell, like done a bench press, tried to lower the bar down to your, your chest as quickly as you can, but for some reason you just hit the brakes? You know? Yeah. Uh, you see, yeah, yeah. Sure. And, and I get that myself sometimes. Like I'll go to bench press, particularly if, if I've had a tough week of jiu-jitsu, and I'll go to bench, and I try and think about trying to pull the bar down quickly, but for some reason I just hit the brakes. And again, it's just that 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 um, lack of qualitative relaxation, particularly if you've yeah. trained a long time, and particularly uh, if you're very grindy. So if you're a very grindy yeah. type of lifter, um, basically you lose that ability to qualitatively uh, qualitatively relax. And if you take a guy who's been lifting for a long time and hasn't done much else, and suddenly get them throwing. They quite often find that they're super sore afterwards because they've lacked mm-hmm. the, 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 the antagonistic inhibition they get is so bad that suddenly their ability to do anything ballistically is utterly compromised because the antagonist muscle, let's say if you do a bench throw or something, it's horrible. If you do a med ball chest pass or something, it's horrible um, because basically they're, they're carrying so much tonus and tension that yeah. um, you know, they can't get that decent relaxation that they need in order to be able to, to perform the movement ballistically. Um, I quite often feel it occasionally when I'm out with my dog and I'm trying to throw a ball for her and I just feel my posterior shoulder suddenly light up because basically it's saying, no, you're not yeah. allowed to, to, to throw that as hard as you can. You know, And it's just that, that lack of qualitative relaxation is something that people do lose, particularly if you're a lifter and you've been lifting a long time. You've taught your, your body how to generate stiffness and maintain tonus and tension, suddenly your qualitative ability to relax, your your ability to establish a, a relaxed tonus is somewhat compromised. Um, and this is a discussion I have sometimes with our physios and stuff about about this, you know, because we have a big population of powerlifters that train at our gym. 
and because mm. powderfins become super super popular all of a sudden we've got yeah. guys who've been in it since they were teenagers who are now in their mid-20s presenting with injuries i've only ever seen in like 40 year old 50 year old powerlifters and a lot of it comes from the fact that that that, that uh, their tonus is all all messed up they're super tight they're super tense <clears> all the time and their ability to relax is utterly compromised and we see this sometimes in fighters they carry a lot of tonus they're very very tight um you know do you see them claw the ground with their feet you see them uh you know clench their hands subconsciously um that's where like breathing drills and, and other relaxation stuff could come in useful just trying to get them to drop some of that that tension that they're hanging on to but that's the nature of playing a contact sport where, where the demand is you have to be tight you have to maintain a certain amount of rigidity to avoid mm -hmm. deformation or, or manipulation by uh you know your opponent or whatever Again, yeah. it got into into a, into a digression. But, I like it. Uh, yeah. Um, hopefully, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, I guess you could say that. So, instead of doing pure, I guess, osteoarthritis, which is like the split squat one with the band, you would then mm -hmm. do it, say, with a bench press, and you would do it in between your reps instead to start mm -hmm. developing. Mm -hmm. I guess if yeah. you're going to do it more often. That's a good entry. That's a good entry point for most people. Is is to gotcha. add in oscillatory work on top of their conventional strength training. So you would take a sub maximal load. You go to either advantaged or disadvantaged. So disadvantage would be yeah. at the bottom of the, of the movement. Advantage would be in, in, the, in an advantaged position at the top of the movement, let's say. Okay. And you can toy, toy with that to help enhance the tolerance for relaxation in, in what we, we would call a compromised position, the bottom of a squat, the bottom of a bench press, you know, those, those types of positions. Gotcha. You got time for another quick question? Yeah, sure. No problem. Yeah. I want to ask you about your own training because yeah. especially with jujitsu, so a lot of guys might train four or five, six times a week, some a little mm -hmm. less, but it's always uh, a struggle for people to be able to balance what they do in the gym and then what mm -hmm. they do in the mat. So obviously I've heard from people that train with, you know, or oh, they don't lift weights anymore because they get too sore and then it, you know, hinders their time on the mats when they're rolling, things like that. So yeah. how do you balance your strength training? So obviously you love to lift uh, your strength training yeah. with, you know, your time on the mat. So you don't have this huge, I guess, interference between them mm -hmm. so basically it's it's a, a big part of it is uh picking your battles so to speak um so for instance now whereas before i was trying to get stronger at everything all at once now <laughs> yeah. i pick maybe well it's, it's you know when you when you start out that's how it works right you just want to get stronger yep. generally now there are things that i kind of put on the back burner and then <clears> things <throat> that i pull forwards in order to focus on specifically um and I pick movements now, particularly as I've gotten older, um, that um, uh, technically simplistic. Um, so, you know, as much as I used to enjoy Olympic, Olympic lifting in my 20s, I, I do a lot less now in my um, uh, you know, late 30s. Uh, there, I still do some high pulls and stuff like that because I like the ballistic nature of those movements. Mm. But in terms of like catching things and, and having to decelerate those things suddenly, um, you know, overhead or, or, or in, a, in, a, in a front rack position, that's very hard for me to do now. Uh, you know, my, my hands are completely jacked up. Like, uh, I can't, I don't know if oh you can my see my yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> Like my, my hands and stuff are, are wrecked. Like a lot of jujitsu guys, like my hand on the other side as well. My little finger doesn't, doesn't straighten properly anymore. So, you know, um, so my, my hands are ruined. So, you know, as much as I enjoy front squatting, I'm, I'm known for loving a front squat. Um, like catching a clean is another kettle of fish because my, my hands and wrists can't take that type of load. So, you know, one thing with jujitsu that you'll find, you know, is that you pick up what we call, I guess, micro trauma, and it's not out and out injury, 
it's low grade soft tissue uh irritation let's put it that way yeah compounded over a period of time so i meet lots of guys who have been doing jiu-jitsu as long as me i'm lucky i don't think i've had it as bad as some but you see their hands and they've got hebridens nodes so all their small joints are very swollen mm. uh they've got like low-grade <laughs> osteoarthritis in their ankles toes hands elbows um and that compounding small joint uh you know um irritation they just have to learn to manage that so you pick and choose your movements carefully um you know you you pick your grip exercises carefully you pick your barbell movements carefully and then another thing another point i make is that you always have accessories to hand or alternative movements to hand sorry that that you can swap out so a great example is this week um just this just this tuesday so the example from this week uh, sorry just this wednesday we were doing um uh, reverse kimura obviously and if you're doing reverse kimura and working on that you're going to be really uh cranking the the crap out of your rotator cuff you know mm-hmm. if anybody's ever had reverse kimura done to them you know it's 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 a kimura but worse um <laughs> and um i came in the next day and i was like my shoulders are really sore um i'm gonna bench i've got bench plans to do so i've got a couple of choices here I did a warm-up set or two and was like, okay, this isn't going to work. I then basically made a small modification because I figured out that, that, say, at the bottom of my bench press was what seemed to be sorest. All I did was grab a fat grip, one of our big fat grips, put it in the middle of the bar. I've killed my ROM on my bench press by about an inch. Yeah. I can bench pain-free now. It doesn't cause me mm. any discomfort. Another situation, I might have switched to, say, our Swiss bar or neutral bar. Um, if that was still painful, then I may have just ditched bench press entirely and maybe do a movement that doesn't pin the scapula, uh, yeah. like a ring push up or something, or just a push up. So it's always about being, having a plan B or C or whatever, and not being so, so beholden to your strength training plan that you can't adapt it in some way, shape or form. You know, yeah. um, it's part of the reason why safety bars exist. It's why belt squats exist. Don't be so attached to conventional barbell exercises that you feel that you can't adapt your training uh, in some way. Again, all that matters for you is stimulus. It doesn't really matter how that comes to you. As long as you're seeing long-term meaningful adaptations that keep you healthy, well, and keep your strength at a respectable level uh, for whatever your age may be. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that I'm 40 next year and I just, uh, you know, my training keeps adapting. Um, you know, around what it is that I'm doing. Like I do, I train jujitsu typically three times a week. I live three times a week and that sort of setup works really well. If I were to be competing again, I probably drop a strength training session and up the amount of jujitsu I do. But right now, yeah. based on my work-life balance, that setup seems to work uh, super well. And the other thing is, the, the, you know, taking my own ideas to heart is that I train intensively, but at very low volumes. But I repeat yeah. that, you know, sometimes monotonously, for long periods, which allows me to maintain decent strength levels. You know, um, I do pretty well for someone my age. I like to think, you know, and given all the other <laughs> mileages I've got going on. So, yeah. No, it sounds like you're, you're doing a good job there with, with balance here and making sure you're not fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> I try, I try to like, like, well, occasionally just, just the point that, that, that <clears throat> sometimes I walk in and go, no, not today. You know, um, sometimes yeah. I just walk away entirely 
go have a sauna or something or, or go, go focus on doing something else for a little bit, you know? Um, yeah. And it's having, having the, um, I guess, having the maturity to do that. It's a grown-up thing. Let's put it that way. Yeah. You know, I always find it's the immature, the immature athlete or the, or the one that doesn't appreciate the ebb and flow of things. The one that, that gets very, you know, retentive about having to do their workout as it's written down and following it mm. to the letter, you know? Um, and then as you know, cause the jujitsu mantra is kind of go with the flow, right? Well, why not take that mm -hmm. approach with your strength and conditioning? Yeah. Just, just be adaptable. Um, they got to grind though. Got to grind. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's great if you're doing you know ADCC or something, but you know ninety nine percent of people who do jujitsu are never going to do that stuff. You know, but yeah. they use those guys as jumping off point, which is always the mistake, in my opinion. You know. Yeah, and they also forget about the extra supplements that go on at that level too. Oh yes, yeah. Don't get me started on uh, you know some of the some of the extra supplements that get involved in Brazilian jujitsu. Uh, my good friend Kier quite often makes that point about. Uh, you know, some of the best guys in the world, uh, you know, they talk about sort of all, all, all this stuff that comes with it, the respect and working hard and, and doing your technique. But then why is there such a, a prevalence of, of, of um, you know, ped usage? Uh, yeah. And it's because the sport is so rough on the body, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, I'm 12 years in and, and things hurt. That I'm pretty sure wouldn't hurt if I didn't do it. But, uh, you know, you love the sport and you want to carry on doing it for as long as possible. And I guess some people are just willing to, to, to do what it takes, right? you know, to yeah. carry on. Yeah, for sure. Well, I can have this podcast go for another two hours, but obviously <laughs> you've had a, had a long day. The yeah, long yeah, day that's, a, that's all right. That, that, that's fine, man. So um, hopefully, uh, hopefully this was, was insightful for, for, for people listening. Oh, for sure. For sure. This, this is great information on, on here for anyone listening as well. But if anyone wants to follow you and see what you're up to, where can they sure. find you? Uh, they can find me uh, at Powering Through. It's, it's kind of my page, but it's also my gym's page as well. So there'll be like uh, gym related content, but also content related to the type of stuff I'm doing. If you want to find me on uh, uh, Twitter, I'm at WS Wayland. Uh, you can find me there. I have a TikTok that I barely use because I don't understand <laughs> TikTok because I'm, I'm super old. So, um, but uh, if you want to go there, that's at Powering Through as well. So uh, yeah, those are the three places you'll find me. Yeah, if you want to see William twerking on camera, that's TikTok is where you're going to follow him. <laughs> yeah. I've not resorted to dancing just yet, but if I get desperate, I might go that route. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Thanks for coming, William. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.